Japan. It just may be one of the world's most enchanting cultures and most challenging for an American to explore. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I absolutely love Japan. It's my favorite place to eat. The elegance and kindness of its people is hard to beat, and it rearranges my cultural furniture in such a fun way. But it's tricky travel, and it isn't cheap. If you're heading for Japan, it helps to have an insider's advice. Coming up, that's just what we get from Ruthie Kanegi, author of A Comprehensive Guide to Living Abroad in Japan. And for adventures closer to home, Jamie Jensen, author of Road Trip USA, has some tips to share on taking that great American road trip. Let's find adventure on the road from Route 66 all the way to Mount Fuji as we rev up for another exciting hour on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, I'm traveling to Japan with Ruthie Kanegi, born and raised in Japan, spent a good part of her life in the United States, and uh, is bicultural and bilingual, and writes a guidebook called Living Abroad in Japan. Ruthie Kanegi, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. I've loved traveling in Japan. In fact, my favorite place to eat anywhere in the world is uh, in Japan. And I found Japan the most challenging country and the most uh, fascinating in a lot of ways that I've traveled in. And I think uh, just as important as, of a, as a list of important sites is an insight into the culture and the fine points so that we can understand what's going on around us. And for that reason, your Living Abroad in Japan book would, would be important. Uh, I know it's primarily uh, written for people living or working in Japan, but yes. for anybody traveling in Japan, you need to understand uh, the little ins and outs of the culture. Yes. I would say that the, the approach or attitude that is most successful if you're going to Japan is to try to be observant and patient and persistent. Don't give up. And um, also appreciate silence. So when you're trying to communicate with people, they may be silent for a little bit because they're either trying to think of how to say it in English or they're not quite sure how to answer but um, just kind of slowing down a little bit and being observant and patient helps you go a long ways. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about religion and daily life in Japan because in, a, in some ways it seems kind of uh, secular and in other ways it seems uh, permeated with religion. And yeah. to me it's a confusing permeation of religion because you've got Shinto, Buddhism, and Christianity. Well, to Japanese it's not um, confusing at all. They take a very pragmatic approach to religion. So depending on the particular event or function, you choose either the Shinto or Buddhist or Christian ceremony. Really? Depending on the function? Yes. For example, huh. newborn uh, Shinto has to do with life and sacredness. So newborn babies are taken to the Shinto shrine when they're about one month old and dedicated. Uh, weddings are either Shinto or Christian or both. Huh. And then Buddhism, of course, takes care of the afterlife, so most funerals are conducted in Buddhism. Now, your parents were missionaries in yes. Japan, is that right? That, and you were born in Japan in the 50s. I was, yes. Right, and I understand from a missionary's point of view, it's kind of frustrating because Japanese are very polite, and you yes. say, you want to be a Christian, you want to be saved, and they go, sure. Right. But, but all of a sudden, they just add that to their pantheon. Exactly. That's the, pretty much the mindset of Japanese culture, and they've huh. incorporated not just religion, but... Even their language, the written language, comes from the Chinese written language and so on. So it's kind of um, tied in with this almost um, frustrating politeness among Japanese. In, how do you mean frustrating? People are so polite, you don't really know what they think. Well, there's a distinction in Japan between kind of your relationships with your in-group, called uchi, and relationships with your out-group, called soto. And so if you're dealing with people who are not part of your groups that you associate with, they maintain a very polite or even professional relationship. So you don't walk down the street in Japan and just smile and say hi to people you don't know. It never happens. <laughs> but if somebody introduces you, if there's a go-between and introduce you, then you strike up a new relationship with somebody on the outside. So it's very... Um common, I would suppose, for American travelers to go over there and travel around and, and really not have a clue of what the problems are. It could be, but, um, you know, do some reading before you go. <laughs> Read my book. Yeah. And also ask questions. Um, 
traveling in Japan is very safe, relatively safe, and there are ways to travel that aren't as expensive as going by the bullet train. Right. Um, one one thing I found, Ruthie, in my travels was there was no way to escape the modern world in Japan, really. I found that uh, the modernity had, had gone to the far reaches of Japan. Did you Were you able to find anything that was, like, uh, forgotten in the past? Well, partly depends what you mean by the modern world. It's true in Japan, no matter where you go, even way in the country in Hokkaido, you'll find a vending, vending machine selling Coke, standing by the side of a road beside a farmhouse. Right. And no towns for miles around. Right. But there certainly are um, areas of Japan where you can get away from it all. I mean, 80% mountainous. So where would you recommend? What are well, your favorites? Just, I would recommend getting on a local train, mm-hmm. a slow train, and traveling to stations that the bullet trains and the express trains don't stop at. Get off and walk around and look around. You know, Go to the mountains of central Japan, like Gunma Prefecture or... Nagano. Just get off at a no-name town, even if your yeah. guidebook doesn't talk about it, and wander around. Exactly. That's what I did in India, and I found it was the best travel advice. I think that would be a very good way. I'm Rick Steves. Call me at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Hey, we have an email from Rami in South, uh, San Jose, California, and Rami recommends spending time in and around the train stations. Uh, apparently, the old-style alleyways and restaurants are there around Tokyo, and they're going to be tearing them down pretty soon for modern construction. Do you know anything about that, Ruthie? Well, to- uh, Tokyo is constantly tearing down and rebuilding. I imagine that he is referring to some of the smaller or less um, famous train stations. Ah. There's a loop line in Tokyo called the Yamanote line. Uh-huh. And if you travel on the Yamanote loop train in one hour, you go uh, one rotation through the huh. loop line. Why, why would he say to spend time around the stations? Well, in the smaller stations especially, there are the cheaper um, eating places and even dokan um, okay. and lodging houses are located near the station. You can also find a internet cafes now near All most right. train stations. Hey, we got some calls on the line. I'm talking with Ruthie Kanegi, who writes a book called Living Abroad in Japan. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we are traveling in Japan. We've got Dory on the line from Corte Madeira in California. How are you doing? Well, we traveled in uh, Japan and found it much easier to order in restaurants there because mm-hmm. they have all those little uh, mock-ups of the meals. Oh, yeah. So all you, they all know the word for window, and then yeah. they take you out and you just point, and, and you don't have to know French or German or Japanese. Right. Or it's anything. a beautiful thing for our listeners they, so they don't know. In the, in the window, they've got little mock-ups of everything on the menu, so uh-huh. the tourists can uh, see what noodles they want or whatever. That's wonderful. We we learned about, I would say, about 50 words, and we were really able to communicate quite a bit. The most important, I think, was, excuse me, sumimasa. <laughs> sumimasa, no, that's you know, a good one. They, they really appreciated it when you yeah. tried to, to just say a few things. And you, you, you embraced the culture, and pretty soon you find yourself uh, uh, kind of bowing as you leave rooms almost. That's true, you do. It's amazing, isn't it? It's a wonderful, wonderful sort of um, contagious uh, flair for living, I think. It is. It's just a wonderful place to go, just very uh, cordial. One of my favorite places was Hakone National Park. Yes. This is where all the Japanese go for for vacations and it's a course where you take a you take a train, a bus, a boat, and then you take three types of cable cars and funiculars mm-hmm. around and you buy one ticket and you spend the whole day with all Japanese. There were no Americans there whatsoever. Wow. It's a fabulous place to go. Hey, hey, hang on here just a minute. Julia in uh, Prague has emailed us, and she says we must see Koyasan, a temple-laden town in the mountains. You can even stay in a temple there overnight. Yes. Do you know about Koyasan? No, I don't. That's, um, I think, kind of the headquarters of one of the sects of Buddhist uh, Buddhism, and uh, it's quite remote. It's north of Kyoto, I believe. That's great. And, yeah, you can go there and stay there and learn uh, about Buddhism and, and stay overnight. I think there's no shortage of opportunities for people who are genuinely interested in these aspects of Japanese culture to find um, lavish opportunities to, to learn about the religion and so on. The Japanese National Tourist Office is fantastic for resources. I happen to live in San Francisco, so we are near San Francisco, so I could just go to one here. And they just had 
millions of different um, websites to go to and reams of material. So That's wonderful. great. Hey, Dory, how did you enjoy the food in Japan? I loved it. Give me Just one. Give it. me one favorite food moment in Japan. <laughs> um, we went. We were uh, waiting to get into the temple, or you know, the main temple um, in Kyoto, and um, we went to this tiny little tiny restaurant and uh, walked in, and I used a couple of the words I had learned, and they were so thrilled. They were so excited, and we had. Um, Yuba soup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just wonderful. But but these these people were so thrilled that these four American women walked in and started saying some uh, Japanese words. To when, them. when you get away from the famous places, you do blow people away that you meet. That you're genuinely willing to go out there, make mistakes, uh, and and stumble around, but learn about Japanese culture. Oh, definitely. And and the raw cans. I, I say that word wrong all the time. Real cans. Mm-hmm. The real cans were wonderful. You got to stay in one of those fancy uh, traditional bed and breakfast. They're expensive, yeah, they but were boy, so they, much fun. What an experience! And getting on the uh, the bullet train, the Shinkansen. I always have my ekibento. Do they still yes, have ekibento? They've got these wonderful compartmentalized box lunches made out of like balsa wood with your chopsticks. And uh-huh. what a wonderful, delicate eating experience! Yeah, it's great. Each region has their own type of bento box, so you can, you know, learn the specialties of that region. So eki bento, is that uh, like a yeah. boxed lunch, literally? Yeah, eki bento is station box lunch. Station box lunch. Right. Uh, another treat for me was the hot sake. You can go mm-hmm. to the vending machines and actually get hot yes. sake. Or beer. Or beer. Or, beer or, or, or hot coffee in the morning. That's the cheapest place we found to get hot coffee. Yeah, hot coffee, hot tea, machine. hot cocoa, and hot corn soup from a vending machine. Uh, I never understood how they kept those cold and hot. Well, leave it to the Japanese. Hey, yeah. Dory, we got to move on. Thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Arigato. Arigato. We have some fun ways we'd like to encourage your participation in Travel with Rick Steves. When you go to our website at ricksteves.com, the radio section has a place you can submit one of three things we're looking for from our listeners. A hometown brag, an audio postcard, and traveler's haiku. A haiku is a traditional Japanese form of poetry using three lines. Remember, the first one is five syllables long, the second line contains seven syllables, and the third one is five syllables long. There's usually a reference to nature and an element of surprise in a haiku, but we're not purists about the form. We just want to hear how travel has brought out the poet in you. We'll read our favorites on the air. So again, we're looking for your submissions. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we travel to Japan, and I've got with me Ruthie Kanegi, who writes a guidebook called Living Abroad in Japan. And Ruthie uh, was raised in Japan. She's uh, lived in America and Japan. Her parents went over there just after World War II, doing some church work. And uh, Ruthie is, uh, I think, uh, perfectly bicultural and bilingual to write a book designed to prepare Americans to live in Japan. And as far as I'm concerned, boy, when you travel in Japan, whether you're planning on living or working or just touring there, rather than a list of sites, you need and a uh, little primer on how to understand that fascinating culture. Ruthie Kanegi, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We've got Dale on the line from Dayton, Ohio, and Dale uh, might have some advice for us. Have you traveled in Japan? Uh, yeah, I lived there for four years while I was in the Navy. All right. And what would you recommend for people wanting to find information to help their travels in Japan? For those people wanting to travel, uh, there are many military bases, and military bases that are scattered through Japan have their own websites. So they advertise a lot of the things that are happening in their area in the different festivals that are going on with more details. Mostly for families and servicemen there who have some free time and they want to get out and have some fun. Right. And so you can get a detailed listing of any festivals for any area. Well, that's good advice. How would we find those? Just Google uh, U.S. Military Japan or what? Yes. All right. Yeah. So I lived in the northern prefecture uh, at the Misawa Air Force Base. And then, of course, in the northern part of the main island, you get into more tight farm country instead of city life so so they can appreciate Americans more if they haven't seen Americans that much so. what are you saying if they haven't seen us that much they appreciate us more <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> especially in the military really sometimes the military doesn't leave a good reputation <laughs> okay so now Dale you apparently uh, appreciate Japanese culture and you know you enjoy getting out of the base and sort of uh, getting lost in the in the little towns and so on of Japan have you been received warmly by people when you get out uh, in the countryside yes if you take an interest in the Japanese then they will more than double back to you an interest in you so hmm. like if you buy them a drink in a bar they owe you two back really because they didn't hmm. ask you for the drink. So okay, it's there. There's some major cultural uh, differences, and uh, consequently, faux pas you can make if you're not sensitive about that, aren't there? Yeah, there's many. Now, Chris from I've got. Hang on here, Dale, because we've got somebody who just emailed us. Chris in Tennessee says it's helpful to be aware of community tensions around U.S. military bases in Japan. Give me a little. I, I didn't realize that was a, a big issue, but we've got uh, two people in a row talking about that, Dale. What's the What's the deal with the military bases in Japan, and uh, what should we know about there? It's back to how do you accept their culture and how do you behave. Many Americans, and especially young. American military people don't have as much respect for that culture. Right. And uh, that'll lead to tension. They're not welcome to um, essentially get wasted on their right. sidewalks and well, there's, there's be a, rude. That's sort of a common decency is if you're in a, in a conservative culture and uh, you're noisy and you're drunk out on the streets just being... Uh, just being sloppy, that's that's really insulting to local people, and it doesn't reflect well on your culture. And those local people would would not be wrong just to generally think these people are crude and disrespectful. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the way things work. Um, yeah. And all we can do is hope that people, when they travel, pay attention to some of the culture. It's, it's especially a, an issue in, in Asia, I think, because there's a lot of very... Um, very um, fine and respectful uh, points that need to be uh, noted. Ruthie, do you have any ideas on that? Well, uh, speaking about, um, I did write in my book about the tensions between U.S. military bases and the Japanese local community because the U.S. military bases are often located in the um, highest population areas in Tokyo or Yokosuka, and in Okinawa, 40% of the arable land of Okinawa is occupied by U.S. military bases. So many Japanese would like to see the U.S. bases phased out or uh, the land given back. 
Okay. And some of the tensions are because of like the fly uh, nighttime flyover practices by the U.S. military over residential districts, etc. Yeah. But I think the caller had a good point: is that you have to show that you have an attitude of respect for their culture and an interest in their culture, and not just acting like, "Well, I'm an American, so I know everything there is to know." I would say the the point here is uh, whether you're in military or not, if you get out into Japan and you have a genuine respect for their yes. culture and a sensitivity for for, right. for their fine points, you'll be received warmly. Is would you agree with that, Dale? They'll bend over backwards to make you comfortable. All right. If you're respectful of them. Yeah. Thank you, Dale, very much for the call. This is travel with Rick Steves. Call me at eight seven seven three 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 Rick. Or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Richard in Martinez, California. Hello, How are you doing? I wanted to uh, expand on a couple of things that, that you've touched on. Great. One is staying in temples. When I was there years ago, I had the opportunity to stay at a Heiji. Oh, yes. And it's up in the mountains and offers uh, uh, accommodations in the Japanese style. Right. Tommy. And I wondered if there's a way, I plan to go back to Japan next year, and I wonder if there's a way to find out which temples do offer accommodations so I can travel from temple to temple, perhaps. Ruthie, do you know? I'm not sure offhand, but what uh, one uh, resource that Dory mentioned is JNTO, or Japan National Tourist Organization. Mm -hmm. If you just Google that organization, I'm quite sure you would be able to find out the information about temples that you can stay at. Very good. Another thing that I wanted to visit while I was there is the the living treasures, they call them, the yeah. artisans who uh, still work with the old arts of Japan, yeah. and I, I think they're recognized by the country as national living treasures, That's something right. like that. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to find out where they are located and uh, arrange visits to see their work? Well, that's that's quite a good idea, I think, to go visit these people because most of them are quite elderly and some of the skills or crafts that they do, you know, maybe dying arts. Hmm. I would recommend contacting one of the consulate generals of Japan in the United States. And again, if you either type in uh, Embassy of Japan or Consulate General of Japan in, in Google or another search engine, I think you could contact the consulates and they might be able to give you that information. You know, let's talk Let's talk about this for just a minute because this is a fascinating thing to me. Tell me if I understand this correctly, Ruthie. Japan has what they call living national treasures, and yes. these are people they have identified as uh, uniquely talented to contribute to the culture, and the government actually says, you are so precious, right. we're going to take all the stress of your financial needs away, and we want you to do what God made you to do for the rest of your life with all of your creative energy. And these people are subsidized or just uh, you know, made comfortable and productive by the government. Is that true? Yes. I don't remember exactly how many there are, but there are different um, arts such as sword making or pottery or weaving or uh, some kind of uh, you know, lacquerware or other kinds of crafts. Because I always thought we should do that in our culture. You know, let's say you like Simon and Garfunkel. Well, you guys have to make music. You're a living national treasure. Now you're set up. Well, I mean, we have that Hollywood, the, the Walk of Stars. Is that something like living mm, national no. treasures? No. Living national treasures is just recognized by the government and put on easy street because we like what you produce. Right. All right. Richard, any other uh, thoughts? Rick, yes. I, uh, my wife and I were there two years ago, and before we left, we arranged for like a, a companion guide in Kyoto. I think they have them in most major cities. Hmm. And it was a, like a free guide for the day. She was just excellent. Wow. And our only obligation was to, to us, to, if we went to lunch, to, to, to invite her to lunch with us. And this would have been a student who was practicing well, English that wanted to share? or It ended up uh, a woman uh, who spoke some quite, a, quite good English. She, was, uh, she had taught English or somewhere. And uh, she, uh, we became great friends, and she took us home and, and showed us all over Kyoto. Boy, that uh, is a great very, insight. Very, very good way to, and she, she knew the rail lines and, you know, how to get from here to yeah. there and what was open and stuff. It was just excellent. Well, you definitely need a, a, a local friend to get you around in Japan without making some time-consuming and money-consuming mistakes, and to have a, a local pal to show you around for the day uh, sounds mm-hmm. like a wonderful cultural exchange. 
Right, yeah. and this is something that's available nationwide. I wrote about it in my book, and I'm searching for it right now, but um, there are these volunteers, often our, our housewives, who want to interact with English speakers, and they'll volunteer and take you around their city for for no charge. That's a beautiful thing. We've got to move along. Thanks a lot, uh, Richard. Wait, I wanted to mention one more thing, if I can, Rick. Sure. And that is, in Kyoto, there's a covered arcade. Uh, not really arcade. It's a shopping and restaurant area. It was great in the wintertime because it was raining quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the uh, things to eat that's really a treat is okonomiyaki. Oh, right. Wow. And there was a special restaurant that, that you know, uh, we asked around and they told us, oh, you got to go eat it at this restaurant. And it was a wonderful experience. I mispronounced it okonomiyaki. Oh. <laughs> but it's, uh, yaki means, um, what Grilled. is that? Grilled, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oko, what, how do you pronounce Okonomiyaki, it? I believe, is that right? And you're cooking right at your table, right? You've got right. a grill on your table. Yes, and you can choose some of the ingredients and, uh. Oh, it's just a, quite a nice uh, experience. That's another reason why Japan is my favorite place on this planet to eat. Mm. Right. Richard, thanks for your call. Thank you. We got Heather on the line in Burbank, California. How are you doing? I'm great. Hi, Heather. Hi there. I just wanted to share a couple of experiences that I had had. I spent a year in Higashi, Osaka, uh, being an assistant English teacher at one of the public junior high schools. Oh, mm-hmm. So one of the things that I that sticks out in my mind is on the flight over, I was sitting next to a Japanese couple, and the woman with her limited English and her handheld electronic translator, we talked most of the way to Japan, and she invited me and a f- friend of mine to come visit her home. And it was shocking almost because that does not happen... In the United States, you know, you meet a stranger and they invite you to their home. And it was a great adventure and I think just illustrates how gracious and generous the Japanese people are to share their home and their lives with um, tourists or people coming to visit Japan. I think it's a combination of their natural hospitality and their appetite for having somebody who's a window on the rest of the world into their home. I I think they're fascinated Mm -hmm. by people from far away. Right. And I felt that, you know, every day it was an adventure because as, you know, a white American, you don't blend in in Japan. And there was often approached by kids or other adults who you know, wanted to share something if we were in the park, wanted to share their sake um, hmm. or invite us to a party. And it was just really easy to strike up conversations, especially with with kids. You know, after learning a bit of Japanese, they go, gaijin, gaijin. Mm-hmm. So I knew they were talking about me, and then mm-hmm. that just opened an opportunity to talk to them. All right. Hey, Heather, we got to move, but thanks very much for your call. Okay, thank you. Okay, happy travels. Bye-bye. Ruthie Kanagi, the author of Living Abroad in Japan, has been traveling with us. Ruthie, a, a couple of insights or questions I have about Japanese culture. First of all, longest lifespans in the world and yes. highest suicide rate, I think, are one of the highest suicide rates. What are your comments on that? Well, longest lifespan, especially women, the average is, I think, 84 years, mm-hmm. probably because they have a good diet take care of themselves. Um, the suicide, I hadn't heard that it's the highest, but there are certainly stress, stressful times during the lifespan. Mm-hmm. That would be students who are trying to study to get into the university of their choice or overworked, what they call salarymen, um, office workers who work overtime and nowadays being laid off is becoming more common. Those would be stressful times. And I heard that if you get laid off, you're sort of forever behind the curve because it's a very seniority kind of system. Is that right? Traditionally, it has been, but now even seniority isn't guaranteed anymore. So the the lot of the salaryman, the working guy in Japan, is, is quite brutal, I think. Yes, and so many young people nowadays don't want to get a job in a big company. They don't want to get into that rat race. So they're called fritters. Furita, which means that they'll work at 7-Eleven and then they go party at night. Or, okay, so they're know, not going to buy into that. the corporate uh, you know, success thing. Right. And then what is the current situation for women? Because my experience was women in, in the workplace, and it was a, quite an old boys' network or something, and it was very tough for women to get any respect in the workplace. Well, 
essentially there are two tracks for women now. Um, by law, Japanese women are guaranteed equal opportunity with men, but um, they can choose either to go into a managerial track where they will be treated pretty much like men over time, being transferred to another city and so on, mm-hmm. or the kind of the office track, which they're expected to work for three or four years, serve tea, and then stop working when they get married. But, but many women, uh, what they're doing now is they're going overseas, working for foreign companies or getting a degree overseas or starting their own companies. So they're not necessarily hindered by... So the, things are changing. This right. is great. Yes. I found when I was in Japan, it was a little frustrating. I wanted to talk politics with people, and I was struck by their interest in not talking politics. Were you talking U.S. politics or Japanese politics? I was talking international politics. I see. Well, yeah. people do bring up you know, things about the U.S. and especially the war right now going on in Iraq and what do we think of Bush and so on. Some people will will talk about that. Okay, and is it still easy to get a job teaching English for Americans in Japan? Um, You can get a job, but keep in mind that most everyone nowadays is highly qualified. That is, people have master's degrees in teaching English as a second language, so there's a lot of competition. Right. You also have to be careful about what kind of place you teach for. There's a lot of private language schools that will work you to death and not pay too well, and you don't have much control over your work environment. Wow. But the JET program that one of our callers said she went to Japan, that's still a good way to go. It's um, sponsored by the Japanese Ministry of Education. Okay. Well, I'm sure there's more information on this and much more in Ruthie Kanegi's guidebook, Living Abroad in Japan. Ruthie, thank you so much for uh, being part of our show and giving us an insight into a fascinating country, Japan. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Okay. Bye now. Bye. For many Americans, there's nothing like taking off on the open road. Coming up, we'll get some ideas on taking the great American road trip from our guest, Jamie Jensen. If you're planning a road trip, chances are he's already driven the two-lane highways of your dreams. We have practical advice on planning your USA road trip as we travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson di Nord Italia e abito in Piemonte e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. I'm Rick Steves and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now we're traveling around the United States by car and I'm talking to the author of a 1,000-page manual on road tripping around the country called Road Trip USA. I've got Jamie Jensen with me, who grew up in Los Angeles back when freeways were new. And after spending 400,000 miles driving around the United States, exploring it like it's his own backyard, he has compiled this book, which is really an inspiration for anybody who's looking for the perfect stretch of two-lane blacktop. Jamie Jensen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Jamie, you've written this Road Trip USA book, and... uh, it's an interesting way that the table of contents is sort of organized. Uh, the, the country is checkerboarded with the m- highways that preceded the big interstate system, right? 
Yeah, basically, you know, if you go into AAA, they give you a map of the interstates, and I kind of wanted to give people a map of all the other roads that are out there. So I've got these roads that, you know, were much older than the interstates. They have a lot more history to them, and they're in between, so you can go and experience kind of, you know, old-timer America and go and see a minor league baseball game instead of getting stuck in some big city. Now, that's an interesting idea. I mean, you know, like I write a book called Europe Through the Back Door, and it, the whole idea is to get to the minor league stadiums instead of the major league stadiums. Uh, that's that's the American application of going through the back door, and, and the trick just fundamentally would be take the smaller roads. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, any number of things, anything that can get you kind of in touch with, you know, real life in these localities, rather than the things that are kind of the same everywhere you go, people eating the same food and, you know, watching network TV. This is, you know, tune into the local radio station and find out about the church social somewhere and go get a barbecue dinner or something or a Friday night fish fry. And it's just a real nice way to get in touch with this America, which somehow gets kind of lost sometimes. Now, I've, I've grown up in the Northwest, and uh, when I hear you talking about all these vivid sort of images of road tripping on the country, um, I would imagine there's uh, wonderful regional specialties, and uh, it makes sense, rather than thinking of, i got to travel 4,000 miles or whatever, people could fly into one region they want to hit, and then pick up a car there, and road trip a little more efficiently if they have a shorter vacation. Does that make sense to you? That's, I, I think that's really the way to go, because not many people have kind of three months to travel around the country, necessarily. But you can get into that state of mind. You catch a flight six hours later, you know, from Seattle, you can be in Nashville, you can be in Memphis, and you can be tucking into a plate of ribs that, you know, your mouth will never forget. And with a rental car, uh, even with the high cost of gas, I think people overreact to the cost of gas in the big picture when it comes to the cost of a vacation. Um, you know, even if gas is twice what you wish it was, it's it's not going to add up to a, a huge amount when you consider what you spend for eating and sleeping. Is that your experience? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd have to drive kind of 48 hours every day to make, you know, gas add up to the cost of a motel room or, you know, even a nice meal somewhere. So, I mean, it does make it's kind of psychological, I think, the difference. But even so, we have it pretty lucky compared to the rest of the world. That's true, isn't it? Now, let's say I've never been road tripping around the Northeast. I'm going to fly right into, what, Boston. See if you can uh, entice me to do a road trip on the Northeast. What would be, uh, what would be the attractions? What would I want to focus on? One thing you wouldn't want to do in Boston is drive very much, so get out of town as quick as you can. And I love the, the, the mountains of New England. Or, uh, you know, people out west think you know the Rockies or the Cascades or something, but you get up to the Presidential Range and the White Mountains, and it's just amazing. And the nice thing about the mountains there, they're not you know wild and pristine necessarily, but they're you know the mountains are gorgeous. But at the foot of them, there's you know a wonderful old lodge or a you know funny little amusement park or something, because these places have been tourist attractions for centuries. You know, Nathaniel Hawthorne used to write stories about these places, and they're still pretty amazing. So when you say amazing, when I think amazing of driving through the mountains, I think of 10,000 feet in Colorado or something, but you're talking amazing in the way that history and culture and nature mix, is that right? Well, and when you look at these peaks, they're pretty, I mean... The weather atop Mount Washington takes some, I think it's the highest winds and sort of place you can imagine. So they're not just little hills. These are proper, I think, okay. like 6,000 foot peaks, but they, you know, are just as amazing as Mount Rainier or something like that. They might not feature on the kind of <laughs> highest points of the world, but you, you certainly get the sense of them being peaks to, you know, take your breath away. Now, people go to New England to see the, um, leaves turning color, right? Is that the peak season for road tripping around? New that England? is, and you know, if you've ever done, I think there are other places to go to see leaves, because like New England, that's they seem to make all their money because they have, you know, short summer and a very short fall season, so unless you've booked, you know, your rooms two months in advance or two years in advance and it's you want to stand in line with a lot of other people to see these leaves, wow. that's kind of, I think, you, you get a sense that New England is overpopulated, but if you go there, you know, Almost any time in the summertime, it's real nice because it's a, it's a real sort of family friendly sense of New England. Everything's very settled. It isn't the big wide open spaces of the West. Okay, so maybe you're wise if you're on a budget and you want to take the easy road to go there on a time other than when the leaves are turning, because I would imagine it's a, a boom or bust almost for the tourist industry over there when it comes to uh, seasonality. I mean, it's certainly something to see once in your life, mm-hmm. probably, or or but. You know, for me, I, I, I tend to like to get away from crowds, and so to go to a place where you can kind of experience it for yourself instead of, you know, buying a ticket and standing in line. So I may be a bit jaded about all those things, but there's a lot else there as well. I mean, New England has you know, just wonderful, you talk about, you know, regional accents, the way people talk, that it's a real difference, apparently. I don't hear it, but to go from Maine to New Hampshire to Vermont, each of those places feels like a distinct nation might feel. They have their own character. I mean, in the springtime, you've got your 
your maple syrup, and you've got these wonderful roadside diners, and Pawtucket, Rhode Island for the 4th of July. I've had some of my most amazing times in these little places that nobody else has ever heard of. I'm talking with Jamie Jensen, who's the author of Road Trip USA, and we're talking about exploring the northeast of the United States by car. Jamie, do you find that some regions of the country seem to have more uh, old-timers that have been there for generations, whereas other uh, regions are filled with transplants? And I would think places that have more people who have been there for generations would would have a little more uh, rootedness feeling and a little more, uh, a little more character. Yeah, I think, I mean, tradition, the, the idea that something is new is kind of a very big American attraction, but somehow I like things that aren't so new. I love restaurants that have been there for three generations, and you tend to find those places, you know, in you know, New England, in the Great Lakes, there's a lot of that. So you have to find, those are the sort of things I try to point people to, these local institutions where, you know, the locals would take you if you knew them, so those rather the than the kind of cutting-edge nouveau bistro somewhere. In your research, do you, do you seek out these kind of places? I, I definitely do, yeah, and I, I'm always encouraging people to send me postcards and write to me. We have, you know, a website which, when we were when I was writing the book, was indispensable. People would write in and say, "Well, actually, the best piece piece of pie is at Mom's Diner around the corner from the place that you mentioned." By the way, Jamie's we- website, if you've got a favorite apple pie place, is roadtripusa.com. That's quite easy to remember, roadtripusa.com. So, Jamie, you actually collect all of this feedback, and you then drive around and stop at these diners and check out the pie. And tell us a little bit about your research. Pro- uh, uh, process? Well, I, I drive everywhere and taste every French fry that I recommend. So it's, they have been over, over the years. I don't tend to get everywhere every year, but you know, that's the downside of having such a huge country that we do. But, and I have a lot of people like someone who really knows Texas, you know, helps me out with Texas and keeps me on top of things. Because the downside of writing a travel guidebook is as soon as you publish it, you know, something happens somewhere. There's a mudslide or a forest fire or something. So, but the, the, again, that's the thing that I like about writing about places that have been there for a long time is that they're more likely to still be there when somebody picks up your book and goes to these towns. And I find if Grandpa ran the place and if your dad ran the place and you're running the place now, you care about your customers and you know your customers are local people that are coming back and if a stray tourist comes in, you'll treat them with the same respect you would a, a local customer. Yeah, and you'll then the people who are in these places kind of know what they're doing. You know, they've lived there their whole lives, and so when they tell you to take this hike up this mountain to go and get this view or find this waterfall, they know what they're talking about. They don't say, "Oh, I don't know, I just moved here myself." Right. Well, hey, we got we got Kay on the line in Seattle, and uh, Kay has uh, explored the n- northeast of the United States. Kay. Yes. Hi. How are you doing? Well, not that bad. How about you? Great. Thanks. Uh, tell us a story about your road tripping in America. Well, I was asked by a friend of mine to help her move. And I said, well, sure. And it was to Boston, which was a little farther than I thought we were going to go. From Seattle to Boston? Yes. With a truck full of sofas and chairs? Oh, and we hopped into a small, cheesy brown car and hooked up a U-Haul and drove across the top of America to Boston. Hey, Route 2, I hope you took. We did take Route 2, but i got to tell you, the key to success on Route 2 is not to have a U-Haul. <laughs> that was such I think a you can say that about anywhere you're going. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun in a kind of strange way. But. but you probably had to miss the going to the Sun Road and all the wonders of the Glacier National Park. No, you know what? We kind of went around the Glacier National Park. Um, we, we didn't do too well with the triptych thing. That didn't work out for us. And we ended up doing a lot of camping, which I am not a fan of. Hmm. But you you can do it. You can do it in Montana. There's a town called Shelby. Have you been there? Oh, I have. Yeah. Well, near Pat's Diner, there is a kind of a KOA campground. And we camped there. They do take U-Hauls, you know. Well, Lewis and Clark did it for two years straight, so... Yeah, but again, I bet not with a U-Haul. No, I probably wish they, they probably wish they'd had one, but... They probably did. Well, Kay, how was your relationship with your friend after that huge favor? You know what? It was great, and the reason for this was somewhere in the middle of America, she got going a little bit too fast, and we were stopped by a state patrolman in some state, and she just just lost it and gave the man a bill from her veterinarian for cat tranks for the driver's license, and that was kind of the end of her driving part, so I did the driving the rest of the way. Wow. And it worked out just fine. Well, that's great. Hey, Jamie has written this book after traveling 400,000 miles. Jamie, how many tickets have you received in all of your driving? Uh, not a one. Not one? I've been pulled over a couple times, but yeah. when I kind of explain what I'm doing, I say, well, I'm trying to find nice things to say about your neighborhood. <laughs> and they, you know, I end up getting tips on where I should get a cup of coffee. And, and rather than That's a good line. Hey, and Jamie, have you ever had any accident in your travels? Uh, touch wood, no. Wow. No, I've, I've, I'm 
pretty careful, even though I'm playing the harmonica and driving with my knees. I'm. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Kay, when you finally got into Boston, did you have any memories about Northeast America? Was that a good part of the trip? I uh, loved it. Not, not so much the driving in Boston with the U-Haul no, part, of course not, but yeah. it was it was beautiful. And we um, we we had a little little error in navigation and ended up in Canada briefly, and so came down through the Northeast, more of the Northeast, really, than we. Well, oh, that's the nice. That's how I recommend people go around the top of the across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and then. Yes. See, this. I think this is what happened. Although we never really officially crossed a border. Hey, I did, hope no one. Did, did you have a guidebook with you, Kay? We did, and then what? we lost it. Somewhere uh, in that Montana campground, we, it, the whole thing went away. And all of a sudden, there were Ks. We knew we were in Canada, so we tried to come back. All right. Kay, thank you so much for your call. You bet. And Thanks. I hope that you uh, do a shorter drive next time you offer to help somebody move. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you know, across town. Across town. All right. Yeah, thanks. Bye now. Bye. And we have Jim on the phone in Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Hello, Jim. Hi. How are you doing? Very good. How about you? Very good. Have you been uh, driving anywhere lately? Well, uh, we took the Lake Michigan Circle Tour, which is a tour of uh, back roads that follows the shoreline of Lake Michigan through uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. Huh. How was that? That was a lot of fun. Uh, It gets you off of the interstate and into where the people really are. Now, Jamie, do you know this trip? I, I know bits and pieces of it. I certainly, I mean, Indiana, I think, always surprises people. It sends people to the Indiana Dunes, which is this you know, pretty wild, pristine landscape you know, right next to Gary, Indiana, which is one of the most industrialized places on the planet. And people are, you, you kind of jaw drops when you walk through and you think, well, what, what happened? It looks like you know, they've just emptied it of any signs of civilization, but it, that's how it's always been. And there are places like that, even in the midst of all that kind of culture and civilization and suburban sprawl, you can find these places. And I've never done it all the way around, but I've done bits and pieces of it, and it's a wonderful ride. Well, Jim, what drove you to drive all the way around Lake Michigan? Well, actually, we had seen signs for the Lake Michigan Circle Tour when we visited the Indiana Dunes, and we decided that might be fun to try, and uh, so we, we started following it, and the, the signs are very well marked. You can go all the way around. And uh, one of the highlights was stopping at uh, uh, the the bridge that connects the Upper Peninsula with the Lower Peninsula. And then there's that old Mackinac Island where there's this wonderful old hotel with the largest front porch in the United States or something yes. like that. Did you catch that? Yes, we did go in there, even though we're not supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> so now, Jim, how would you know about that largest front porch? Did you have some kind of a guidebook? Uh, they make a big deal out of it on Mackinac Island. Okay. Uh, it's It's the Grand Hotel. Uh, built in the early 1900s and uh, was a, an escape for the rich and famous. Yeah. Now, I'm talking with the uh, author of Road Trip USA, Jamie Jensen. And, and Jamie is, uh, like me in my writing, we're trying to help travelers connect with the character, the local varieties, and get close to the ground and so on. And we were talking about different ways to do that. And uh, uh, Jamie talks about the importance of uh, just kind of checking in with the regional radio stations. I think that's sort of a, a clever insight into each region. Uh, Jim, in your travels, did you, did you find the radio contributed to your uh, connection with the local cultures at all? Yes, it did. Uh, it, one of the things that was fun was driving from place to place and trying to find out what kinds of radio stations they had in each in each uh, little town. Um, one uh, one thing that was a lot of fun as well was uh, uh, visiting the different restaurants along the way. Right, and Jamie, what are some more ideas on how people like Jim who are driving around Lake Michigan and they want to see more than the biggest porch in the world? Uh, how can they uh, have some some little uh, tricks to connect? Yeah, well, I mean, always follow your nose, basically. If you see a sign pointing off, you know, historic site, stop and see what it's pointing you toward. And a lot of those ways, even if the thing itself isn't that interesting, just the act of getting out of the car and looking at things while not traveling at, you know, 45 miles an hour, you notice things, and you can follow that and actually end up in the old town square, and you'll find out about the local diner on the other side of the road and things like that. But, it, you know, traveling in a car is great, but also getting out of the car <laughs> is, is, is good, too. And so, to you know, all these things are basically... Basically, you know, enjoy the time that you're there. Don't be so destination-oriented. I think that's something that people kind of over-plan their trips sometimes. Yeah, that's, I imagine, a fundamental difference between a good road trip and a not-so-good road yeah, trip. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be—you're there to have fun, and every moment is what you should be treasuring, not the yeah. kind of idea, well, we've got to get down another 200 miles or we're going to be behind schedule. Jim in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, do you got any trips coming up? Uh, we're hoping to uh, take one of your trips to Europe in the next couple of years. There you go. That's a different kind of road trip. Yes. All right. Hey, thanks, Jim, for your call. 
And we've been talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA, getting some ideas for exploring our own country. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on um, getting around the USA. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. Pennies in a stream Falling leaves a sycamore Moonlight in Vermont I see finger waves Ski trails on a mountainside Snow light in Vermont Telegraph cables They sing down the highway And travel each bend In the road People who meet In this romantic setting Are so hypnotized By the lovely Evening summer breeze Warbling of a meadow love Moonlight in Vermont. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. That's where you can also send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department and sign up for our Radio Waves email updates. Details are at ricksteves.com. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, technical support from Dan Souter and Matt Iglesias, and additional assistance from Reagan Sewell and Pat O'Connor. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.